Scott Colborn with Exploring Unexplained Phenomenae. Powered by lots of coffee. Enough to float battleships and put out fires. With me is Jim Shorty over here on my left. Hi, Jim. Was was that a battleship or are you on fire? No, I'm fully prepared. <laughs> How is the coffee, by the way? It smells good. I haven't sampled yet. Well, what's come I, on? I get shall do program. so. I've had a great, great week so mm. far and looking towards even better this weekend. Um, I try to live my life so that every day is a is a good day. That's why I wear Hawaiian shirts. Um, I've got an event that I'm attending, the Starworks UF, uh, USA UFO Symposium. There's a mouthful. Mm-hmm. I'll try that again. The Starworks USA UFO Symposium in Laughlin, Nevada, November 1st through the 3rd. The color theme is black and white. So I just got two really cool Hawaiian shirts. They just arrived... And I'm not wearing one today. I am wearing a Hawaiian shirt, yeah. But yes. Not one of those new ones. So, all the other shirts in my closet are saying, come on, what about us? Well, is, is there such a thing as a black and white Hawaiian shirt? Oh, it's they're pretty cool. Really? Yeah, very, awesome. very cool. I can't wait to see them. Okay, we've got uh, a great show for you. We're going to start with Charlene and the Capital Humane Society. Then we're going to go to Lloyd Arbach. And uh, the paranormal professor. And we've got his segment called Invisible Signals. Lloyd's got two classes coming up, too, that we'll talk about. Our main guest is Preston Dennett. He's the author of 24 books, including this brand new one called Schoolyard UFO Encounters. Wow, what a book! Okay, let's start things off with some dogs and cats for adoption. And here is Charlene from the Capital Humane Society. Hi, good morning. Good morning. I hope things are going good out there at the Capital Humane Society. They're going very well. We're getting ready for uh, Clear the Shelters today. We're participating in the event again. It uh, starts at 11. Um, So uh, the adoption fee for all cats, kittens, dogs, and puppies is $50. Oh, that's so fun. Yes. Okay, the big event, Clear the Shelter, today starts at 11 o'clock. You're going to hear us talk about cats first, then dogs. And the adoption fees have been dropped to $50. Very cool. Um, who do you want to start out with? There's such, such good-looking cats here. I know. We have so many. So we'll start with Bertha. And she is a three-year-old spade female, domestic short hair, a shiny black cat, very bright, obviously beautiful, uh, looking for somebody who wants a smart sidekick. That, that's a cat that would be hard to see at night, but look at those eyes. They almost just glow. Yes, you're right. And she has that, uh, almost that look of, I'm up to something. <laughs> She's saying, hey, it wasn't me. Come on now. She is yeah. shiny. Yes. yes. And soft, too. So really a sweet cat. And black cats are really warm lap warmers. That's true. Okay, who's next after Bertha? We will talk about Cindy, a pretty orange tabby cat with oh. long fur. Oh, sure. About two years old. Yeah. She's a, she's a little bit shy, so a lot of times she will be kind of hiding. She likes those 
uh, cat posts that have the little tunnels in them so she can hide in a little tunnel. So if you have a nice quiet home with some hiding spots, Cindy would like very much to meet you. Have you ever seen that internet meme, monorail cat? That's the pose Cindy is in in her picture. You, <laughs> I'm assuming she really does have legs. Yes, she does. Okay. Yes, they're tucked under there. Yeah. Yep, she's ready to ready to bounce. Cindy the monorail <laughs> cat. The legs come with the cat. Cindy the cool cat. And we've got Bertha, Cindy, and? Toodles. I like that Toodles. name. Toodles. <laughs> That's great. Toodles is two years old, a domestic short hair, a gray tabby cat, a beauty ready to find a home with people who treat her with kindness. Uh, so if you have space in your heart and home, we hope you'll ask about Toodles. The cat with a fun name to say. Ready, everybody? Yeah. Toodles. <laughs> okay, uh, this is the Clear the Shelter Day, and so all these cats have got a reduced uh, adoption fee. Bertha, Cindy, and Toodles, they've got plenty of buddies. Their pictures are up at capitalhumanesociety.org. To take advantage of that big special, the doors open um, at 11 o'clock for this Clear the Shelter. What are the hours today and tomorrow? We are open 11 to 5.30 today and tomorrow. Um, we do stop adoptions a half hour before we close. So um, 11 to 5 today for the um, Clear the Shelter event. Okay, and uh, dogs are also at a reduced adoption. Dogs starting with? We have Blaze. Hey, Blaze. And Blaze, yeah, is a Border Collie, about seven months old, a neutered male, obviously a very intelligent dog, a very active dog, needs a family that uh, wants to provide plenty of exercise and playtime. Um, he also needs a home with no kids under 12 and should meet other dogs to make sure everyone's going to get along fine. Um, permanent weight loss program, a couple of walks every day. Blaze would be glad to go with you. Take a look at his picture at capitalhumanesociety.org. A Blaze and... Next up is Dozer. Hi, Dozer. And our volunteer just took that picture this morning. It's so cute. <laughs> Got that black patch over his eye. A neutered male American bulldog, about a year old. Uh, just a sweet guy that has a personality that will melt your heart. So we hope somebody will come in today and ask about Dozer. Cool dog. Pictures are up at CapitalHumaneSociety.org. Dozer. And his buddy is... Next up, we'll talk about Hank Jr. He is about nine years old, a German short-haired pointer, a very big, friendly dog looking for a new home that doesn't have cats, <laughs> and he must meet other dogs to make sure they're going to get along just fine. But we know the right family is out there for Hank Jr., and maybe they'll stop by today. And if you said bird, Hank would be on point, boys. Absolutely. He is intent. I think any more, if you've got that name, Hank, there's got to be a junior on the end of it, don't you? <laughs> Hank Jr. Okay, Blaze Dozer. I spelled that Doozer. I'm going to take out one of those O's. Okay, there it is. <laughs> now, it's, now it's Dozer. And Hank Jr. Reduced adoption fees apply today. Pictures are up at capitalhumanesociety.org. Better yet, go out and see these great animals. Here's Charlene with Hours Open. Please visit us at our Pylock Pet Adoption Center. Uh, Saturday and Sunday, we're open 11 to 5.30, and we do stop animal interactions a half hour before we close. I hope you just have a tremendous day today and tomorrow. 
Thank you so much. We're looking forward to it. Okay, everybody, go out there and have fun. Thanks, Charlene. Thank you. Have a great day. Sounds like a lot of fun, doesn't it? You guys could be part of that. Capital Humane Society of Lincoln, Nebraska, reduced adoption fees today and tomorrow. The event kicks off at 11 o'clock. See these fine animals at capitalhumanesociety.org. I'm Scott Colborn, and next up is our paranormal professor, Lloyd Arbach. Hi, Lloyd. How are you? Okay, Scott. How are you doing? Thank you. I'm doing great. I just had the pleasure of reading that you're doing a couple of classes coming up at the Ryan Education Center. Right. And That's right. We my, have a Science of ESP class coming up and the Developing Your Intuition class. Which one of these do you want to talk about for a little bit here? Well, um, <laughs> that's pretty much up to you. Uh, well, but, let's, take uh, the, let's take the ESP because that, that's a broad category. Right, um, right. What do, what do we mean when we talk about extrasensory perception? Well, there we're talking about information abilities, so the ability, just the variations of people's ability to pull information, whether it's seemingly mm-hmm. from other people's minds, you know, kind of a communication, or whether it is real-time from the past or from the future. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's... It's certainly a lot more common than psychokinesis, mm-hmm. and people do take it in stride a lot more, and it's easier typically to develop as well. Could an argument be made that when we meet people, that somehow we pick up on something and we get information that tells us before they even say a word whether or not they're a friend, an ally, or a potential adversary? Well, you know, first, we are getting information from our normal senses, typically, uh, when we're meeting somebody. Mm -hmm. So that's happening. Uh, You know, you don't necessarily need ESP to pick up on cues from people. And, of course, people who are able to fake being psychic do that by using the normal senses and making some assumptions, Mm -hmm. uh, consciously or unconsciously. But there is a model of of information processing of ESP called First Sight that uh, James Carpenter came up with a few years ago, which kind of builds on some previous ideas that even before we walk in the room where we meet somebody, we have kind of a scanning happening. And wherever we go, we're, we're kind of scanning the environment with our, our ESP, with our psychic senses. And if there's information we might need, uh, to know something we need to know that gets integrated in our perceptions. And I think the key here is that some of what we pick up with what we think are our normal senses really isn't from our normal senses. It's really from ESP. It just get, gets integrated, and it's, it's not, not different enough than what our senses are picking up normally. So it doesn't set up a red flag that it's psychic at all. Mm-hmm. Um, have there been ESPs done from outer, uh, excuse me, ESP tests done from outer space? Well, Edgar Mitchell did, who was very interested in this subject, did some ESP card tests with someone while he was in Apollo 14 in space down here on Earth. And it was kind of, you know, it wasn't the, I can't say that it was a stellar success in terms of the 
the, the scoring on it, but there was some indication that something was going on, certainly. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other side of that is that people have tried to remote view spots in outer space, and we get various um, kinds of information. Some of it's pretty wild and has not been verified at all, but things like uh, Ingo Swan, who was more or less the father of remote viewing, he, he came up with some of the basics of remote viewing for the government program back in the 70s, but he also was capable of going out of his body, or at least he claimed that. And part of what he did, uh, he actually wrote this in his book, To Kiss Earth Goodbye, which came out in 1976. He traveled to the outer planets. He, he traveled to Jupiter and he traveled to Saturn. And he described things about Jupiter and about the rings of Saturn that were contradictory to what we thought we knew about those planets until Voyager got there and confirmed what he saw. Oh, interesting. So we're not limited. You know, ESP doesn't seem to be limited by distance the way that that signals are. Mm-hmm. You know, we have a distance issue with signals, the radio signals and everything else in terms of signal strength. It doesn't seem to be limited that way because it's not working that way. And do you, do you see um, an adapt sh- uh, a, a adaptation of... ESP skills, do you see that as something that could be taught to business and corporate America in terms of, of their interactions with people? Well, some people naturally have this. Uh, and again, many people are psychic or have, you know, have these ESP abilities without really being aware that they're, they're doing that. Uh-huh. Uh, they write and chuck it off to other things. This mm-hmm. happens with with women who claim that, you know, they're the women's intuition, men have gut, gut instinct or gut feelings. Um, this is just a, that's just the way we describe things. There was a study done in the 60s of corporate executives who moved through the corporate ladder extraordinarily fast, who also, and they did that, uh, and who did that by making decisions that seemed often to be intuitive rather than following the, the process of business. And they were tested. Um, put three ESPP tests by Douglas Dean and John Michalowski. There was a book actually that came out in the 60s called Executive ESP, and they scored very high in ESP tests. So it is something that people who are creative or people who are uh, in tune seem to do without thinking about it. And they could probably develop their abilities in other applications if they acknowledged and understood that that's what was going on. Mm-hmm. Lloyd, have you personally had the experience that a lot of people talk about where you have thought about a friend or a colleague, but you haven't talked to them for quite a while, and they've been kind of like on your mind, and the phone rings and you go to pick it up and it's them? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. I mean, that's happened to me since I was a teenager. I think that and, that is an example that we could hold out to a lot of people listening yeah. that might go, eh, ESP, I don't know about that. But I think we start breaking this stuff down, and people will go, oh, yeah, that's happened to me. That's happened to, the, to Lloyd, that, that professor guy. That's happened to Scott. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's pretty interesting. Of course, we're not sure in those cases whether or not you're sending out a signal. Um that causes that person to call, oh. or whether or not you're just aware that this person is thinking of you 
and is going to call. Boy, I can tell you for me, Lloyd, that it's not me sending the signal out because there were so many times that in my heart of hearts, I was sending the signal to a extraordinarily beautiful woman to, <laughs> to uh-huh. please contact me, please. On on one knee, I would, and uh, never happened. Yeah, um, I think a lot of a lot of it because we're not really trained for it, really not aware of how to use it, that it's unconscious. Well, this no is what we try to do consciously. It doesn't seem to work that way. Yeah, this is a class called Scientific Approach to ESP. It's eight weeks. And it's through the Rhine Education Center. Um, it's going to meet on Monday evenings. This is really convenient for people. It's 8.30 to 10 o'clock Eastern Time. So that would be 7.30 to 9 o'clock um, Central Time. Right. And um, people can sign up by doing what? It's a go-to, the easiest thing to do, I mean, the actual website is rhineedu, so R-H-I-E. I-N-E-E-D-U dot org, and you'll go right to the page of classes, or you can just go to Rhine, R-H-I-N-E dot org, and click on the education button uh, tab for that, and it'll take you over to the Rhine Education Center. Um, you know, the short name of the class is Science VSP, and part of it, uh, you'll, you'll notice if you look at the description, it says it's an eight-week academic class. Mm-hmm. What we mean by that is people who want to take this as part of a certificate program can take this for a grade, but by at least half the people who take all of our classes are not taking it as an academic class. So they're watching the lecture, whether they do it live or we do record the lecture in case people can't make the live lecture. Oh, that's good. Uh, so they, they watch the lectures, they do the reading. They might participate in the discussion forums but they're not interested necessarily in getting a grade, and that's perfectly okay. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, and there's a second class that these are sort of... Uh, do, do you have to take these classes in, in segue or in order? Because you've got yeah. a second one coming up called Developing Your Intuition. Right, and that's not part of the certificate program. That's a four-week class. Think of that as just a fun adult ed class. Um, and that really, it touches on what we've learned about both ESP and psychokinesis. So we do talk about PK in the class as well. And what we've learned about the common factors, so there's a, that tiny overlap with the science VSP class. Uh, but we then go through uh, the things that make people psychic, you know, the things that really we've learned make a good psychic, the things that make people psychic, how people understand how to do it. And there, and there are exercises and even some games that people can play uh, to become more psychic, depending on what you want to do. Yeah, Lloyd, if I picked out three symbols uh, to do just an impromptu game here on the air, would it be appropriate to pick out like a circle, a, a cross, and what would be a third symbol? Well, the ESP cards are a circle, a cross, actually a plus sign, three wavy lines, a square or a star, and that was those were created purposely because uh, a circle is one line, the plus sign is two lines, three wavy lines, four corners or four lines for a square, and five points of a star. That's kind of a one through five type situation. Okay, so what I'm going to have you guys and gals do here is I'm going to have Jim. There's your choices, Jim. There's all five choices, okay? And there's my pen. I don't want to see what you do. But you're going to pick one of those, Jim, 
Okay. And um, we will uh, have you folks listing. Think of either a Jim Wood or the or Lloyd Wood or the the symbols again. I wrote them down here, but I want you to tell the folks. Circle plus wavy lines, three wavy lines, square and star. Okay, folks, those are your five choices. I want you to think about one that Jim has just picked. And you want to try a guess, Lloyd? Um, I mean, I could try a guess. You know, something like this is kind of a one out of five shot, so. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'll probably not in the right mind frame to even try this. But okay, well, I don't want to put you on the spot. Um, yeah, it's all right. You know, it's earlier in the morning here in California, so I'm going to try. Th- I'm going to try three wavy lines. And uh, you guys and gals, you've got your you've got your circle, your plus sign, the three wavy lines, the square, and the star. Guys and gals, you've got your answer. Jim, what did you what did you choose? I'm going to hold up the paper here with the one I chose circled, and I've given you back the pen before you guessed. So, three wavy lines. Oh, I guessed it. Scott got it. Good cool. for you, Scott. I'm going to have another cup of coffee and celebrate. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you do that? Hey, Lloyd, uh, thank you so much for, for uh, all that you do. These classes, again, uh, folks, Lloyd will be teaching these. The first one is in September, Scientific Approach to ESP. And I think you'll be astounded to find out more about what some of our potential is. And, well, and how much evidence we actually have supporting it, yes. regardless of what the skeptics actually say. The October class is Developing Your Intuition. And this is at the Rhine Education Center. Lloyd, what do you got planned for the rest of the weekend? Well, in a little while today, I'm going out with a few, a couple friends to a coffee roastery that has a, a uh, an event every Saturday to taste all, all 25 or 30 of their coffees. Whoa. Uh, so for free, they do it every weekend. And I, I tend to hit that a little bit. Otherwise... Uh, I'm going to play it by year this weekend. I don't have anything other than planned other than to review a couple papers that have come out. Okay. Lloyd, thanks again for being part of the team. Have a great rest of the weekend. Thanks, Scott. Take care. And what did you guys and gals, how did you fare with that, that test that we did? That was just kind of impromptu. And, Jim, I swear that I wasn't looking. Yeah. And stay out of my head. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now, that was pretty cool. Uh, let us know. Post on the Facebook page or uh, ring us up here on the studio. Let us know what you got, if you got it right or not. Yep, that was fun. Okay, stay tuned now for our main guest coming up, uh, Schoolyard UFO Encounters with Preston Dennett. He's up next. We're going to take a break, and I'm going to have some more coffee and celebrate, and we'll be right back.
Voice of the Blues in Lincoln, Nebraska, KZUM Lincoln and KZUM HD. Support for KZUM comes from the Rococo Theater presenting Beatles vs. Elvis, a musical showdown with tribute band Abbey Road and Elvis tribute Scott Bruce. Sunday, August 18th at 7 p.m. at the Rococo Theater. Tickets, details, and more at rococotheater.com. This program is made possible in part by a grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. And by... Playing with Fire's August Music Festival on Saturday, August 24th at Midtown Crossing in Omaha. Featuring indigenous and European artists Willie and the Bandits, plus Sebastian Lane Band and Blues Ed Far and Wide. Gates open at 3.30 with music at 4.30. Open to all. Details are at playingwithfireomaha.net. My name is Manny Morales. I'm 45 and I coach youth football. It's still hard to believe because the high school me was a work in progress. But big brothers, big sisters give me a real role model. And the young me needed a role model bad. My bigger brother's name is Ray. And Ray is the reason that this seven-year-old grows up to be a role model himself. Whether you donate money or time, you're helping Big Brothers Big Sisters help a child. Start something today at BigBrothersBigSisters.org. Brought to you by Big Brothers Big Sisters and the Ad Council. The full moon lights the silver rails winding around dark mountains and over steep gorges of jagged rock and one freezing cold rushing black mountain river. I wish there was enough time to describe all of the funny twists and turns that led up to now, but there isn't enough time because there's a ticking clock and the two passengers we care most about don't know anything about it. To see what happens next, visit read.gov to read The Exquisite Corpse, a riveting adventure pieced together by John Sheska, Shannon Hale, Daniel Handler, and other popular authors. Explore new worlds. Read. Brought to you by the Library of Congress and the Ad Council. Hi, I'm Dick Valverde, and I'd like to invite you on a musical journey of both sound and rhythm to a place I call Mesoterra. We'll travel far from commercial culture and just a step or two away from the abstract. So join me on Saturday afternoons, 3 to 5 p.m. for Mesoterra, right here on KZUM. Scott Colbord and Jim Shorney. We are exploring unexplained phenomena. You know, Jim, this is um, <clears throat> August. It is. According to the calendar, September follows August and then October. This October, we celebrate 35 years of broadcast. Wow. Isn't that cool? That's cool. 35 years young. Maybe we should do like something for that. Let's think yeah. about that. A little dinner or party or something. It'd be kind of fun. Yeah. Hey, speaking of fun, Mr. Fun, Mr. Excitement is with us. <laughs> Preston Dennett, our friend from out there. He's from the, the West Coast. And Preston holds down the first segment of the month, the seen and the unseen. And then we're fortunate enough to have him on for a full-length guest appearance. 
He's got a brand new book out, and I just got the book this week. I've been powering through it, and what a book it is. It runs slightly over 200 pages, and it's about, I think, a really important topic that has been acknowledged but hasn't really studied, been studied in this depth before. And the title of the book is Schoolyard UFO Encounters. There's a number of reasons why this is very, very special. And so I applaud Preston for doing that. What do you say, guys and gals? Let's bring him on. Here's Preston Dennett. Hi, Preston. Hi, Scott. How you doing? I'm doing great. We've got enough coffee here to float a battleship and put out fires. <laughs> How are you doing? I'm doing well. Glad it's the weekend. Yeah, I'm excited. Oh, geez. You have been so busy. Your, your huge book that ran over 500 pages, UFO Healings, um, is being talked about a whole bunch. And then on the back of that, with like no rest at all, You've got this book out called Schoolyard UFO Encounters. Uh, and so, Preston, I hope that you're getting a lot of uh, well-deserved congratulations from people, your colleagues, as well as the public, because you deserve it. Hey, thanks. I appreciate that. Yeah, I'm having a really good response to this one. And, uh, yeah, I couldn't be happier. <laughs> this is one of my favorite books, actually, that I've written in quite a while. I, I think it's... Go ahead. Yeah, it made me cry, actually, as I'm writing some of these chapters, because, mm-hmm. I mean, children are just so precious. They're seven, they're eight years old. It's like, oh, my God, what's going on here? Yeah, there's a number of reasons why I think this is special. Uh, and let's start out and talk about these. You know, um, first of all, to have a schoolyard UFO encounter, typically you need broad daylight, right? Because that's when schools are in session. Yeah, and that's what we're seeing. You know, the typical sighting is usually at night, pretty uh-huh. high up there of an anomalous light, say. But that's not what's happening in these cases. These are usually daytime sightings. There are a few nighttime, but the 90% are during the day, often during recess or lunch, which I find kind of interesting mm-hmm. like how do the ETs plan that I don't think it's a coincidence because it just keeps turning up and yeah they're very low level sightings and when I say low level I mean like gosh 300 feet uh, 50 feet uh, 30% of the cases actually involve landings or humanoids uh, these schools are being directly targeted this is not a coincidental flyover these objects appear from, you know, above or the horizon, come straight for the school, start circling around it, hovering above it. So, yeah, these are very unusual cases. Uh, I think one could uh, could rightfully consider what Carl Lorenzen said from the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization, or APRO. Uh, I used one of, one of her quotes from your book. That she said that that this appears to be uh, instructional in nature, uh, and that they're attempting to reach a number of these young people uh, early in life to show them that they're not alone. I'm paraphrasing greatly the remarks there. Would you agree with Carl Lorenzen's 
view? Are these, uh, for the most part, benevolent? Yeah, absolutely. I think that is their primary agenda in doing these type of what I would call a display. Uh, Jim and Cora Lorenzen were among the first to notice that mm-hmm. UFOs were drawn to schools in a big way. And around that time, this was in the 1960s, there was a bunch of schoolyard encounters. Ray Fowler noticed this pattern. He started analyzing his cases. He had like 20 or so, and about eight involved objects targeting schools. Uh, John Keel noticed this. A lot of researchers have noticed this. And I think you're absolutely right. They are appearing over these schools for the expressed purpose speculating here, but just based on their behavior, of convincing kids that UFOs are real. Uh, I just can't get away from that, because these are such in-your-face, brazen sightings. They're, you know, the typical sighting is pretty quick, maybe a few minutes at most. Some of these cases endure, gosh, an hour, two hours, three hours, over a period of days even in some cases. So they definitely want to be seen, and I'm thinking they want to convince children of the UFO presence, and that's what their ultimate goal is, mm-hmm. sort of to get a universal belief in UFOs. An interesting uh, anecdote aside, uh, Ray Fowler and I share the same birthday, November 11th. Oh, interesting. So I've just that got a bunch of cases in the book, which actually occurred on my birthday, May 6th. That was interesting. So let me run a theory by you. Um, if the the UFO presence, which could be a whole bunch of different people, some people use the word alien. I'm more and more wanting just to use the the word people, other sentient beings. The the UFO phenomenon. If it wanted to study and interact with human beings and to partially control the situation, both for their own safety as well as for keeping the information fairly tightly controlled, I believe that the phenomenon would want to act with, interact with, people that lived on reservations, our Native American friends, for example, people that live in cloistered communities like the Amish, uh, people incarcerated in prison or jail or in hospitals, or people that were young enough that they couldn't be impulsive enough to pick up a weapon and try to shoot or to hurt the UFO occupant, which would be children. Right. So I have in my files, I have examples from all those things that seem to point that the UFO phenomenon for many years has been learning about us and studying us but it does so in ways that it tries to limit the amount of exposure uh, as well as to control the information. We know that from, from Native Americans, 
that what happens on the reservation typically stays on the reservation. They're very tight-lipped about talking to outsiders. Uh, the same with the, the Amish and cloistered communities. We had a case just over in Iowa some years ago of some unusual crop designs. And two of my colleague friends went over to investigate. And uh, they were really sort of held out and interrogated by a couple of the farmers before they were allowed to, to meet. And they walked into a kitchen where there were about 12 guys sitting around this big table that represented all the people that lived in that area that they began to talk about the experiences with the others that went clear back to childhood and, and spanned several generations. And now we have your excellent book, which again talks about the phenomena interacting with young people, as you say, in a very controlled situation, because it's as if they know when the, the recess bell is being rung. Uh, they show up when the kids, you know, it's like, okay, Sam, take her down. The kids are just walking out the doors now. <laughs> so what, what do you think about that theory? Um, yeah, I think it's right on the mark. Uh, because I, I do have cases of UFOs hovering over prisons, like you're saying, in some of these other areas. And, well, here's, you know, speaking towards that, half of the cases involve elementary age students, wow. elementary schools. So, I mean, what does that say? Um, there, the other half does involve, you know, colleges, high schools, middle schools, and so on. Mm -hmm. But with the majority occurring to elementary age students, that just goes right along with what you're saying there. And we should add, too, that this excellent book of yours, this is not just the USA. Yeah, gosh, it's amazing. Um, these cases are all over the world. Australia, Wales, England, Ireland, Scotland, France, China. China. Mm -hmm. China. Oh, South America, Venezuela, Mexico, uh, Brazil. Um, all across the U.S., Canada, England, you name it. I couldn't find any cases in Russia. Uh, I guess that's just because of, you know, the information is hard to get out of there sometimes. But I'm guessing there's a lot of cases there, too. And uh, children, you know, particularly elementary age, we're talking, gosh, six, seven, eight, nine years old, are unique witnesses. In most cases, they have never heard of UFOs. They don't know what they're seeing. They don't put any judgment on it. They have no preconceptions about the whole, whole phenomena. So they just kind of report what they're seeing. And uh, I do think make excellent wit witnesses. Yes, they're imaginative, uh, but you've got to remember in half these cases, the teachers are seeing the stuff too. And this is not just one or two witnesses. Typical schoolyard encounter involves 40, 50 people, you know, 100, 200, there are a couple of cases out there with 400 students witnessing this stuff. Wow. So, I mean, what is going on here? Yeah, I think they're absolutely coming down and sort of getting the message out in a way that's not going to cause sort of an explosive reaction in society, Did but it's very effective. Do any of these... these uh cases get covered by the media? 
absolutely a pattern I've noticed. Uh, that's not at all unusual. Many of these cases do uh, result in some sort of publicity. Usually it's just local newspapers, but several of these cases have made international headlines. There's about five really famous cases of schoolyard UFO encounters, and each of those generated major headlines. So some, most of them I'm, I'm thinking are don't, or they're covered up, or they're not talked about, uh, but some get a governmental response. And in the Westall Melbourne case, this involved some two, three hundred students who saw multiple UFOs, at least one of which landed behind the school. A bunch of kids ran up to it. They could feel the heat coming off of it. They were literally feet away from it. It takes off and darts away, being followed by a bunch of uh, planes presumably from the government, uh, but no one's ever been able to track those planes. But what's interesting is this encounter had literally just ended when the military showed up uh, in large numbers, wearing military fatigues. The police came. The media came. It was a huge event, and uh, it was immediately covered up. Students were actually brought into separate offices and questioned by the military without their parents being present, by the way and told that what they had seen was not a UFO, and they are not to talk about it. So that case was actively covered up, uh, but did get into the media anyway, and was still kind of quashed and not talked about for years and years. That's that's a pattern we definitely see. Um, a friend of mine, uh, his first name is John, lived in um, Northeast Lincoln, and had told me that uh, when he was growing up, he's just a little bit older than myself. And, you know, Preston, as I get older, I'm finding fewer and fewer of those people that are older than myself. <laughs> Most everybody is younger. <clears throat> but John's, John's a little older. And so he remembers that during the summer, uh, for entertainment, they would gather on a schoolyard and they would set a, a screen up. And when the sun went down, they would show movies. And so the neighborhood families would gather on the schoolyard, uh, sort of a picnic, if you will, soft drinks and things, and they would wait for the sun to go down. Then they would have the screen set up and start the, the movie projector, and they would show a movie. And this was a summertime treat for the kids. And he remembers one of these events where it was as if everybody froze, and there was this... Uh, distortion in the air that looked like you were looking into someplace else. Uh, and there was this rectangular box-like device that appeared. Uh, and this is going back a number of years. I've now heard, as you have, other reports of these rectangular box-like craft, but it it didn't have the sleek aerodynamics of the of the saucer or the cigar or the, you know, our technology, the airplane. This was just like a great big rectangular box. And there were interactions then with people. Um, most everybody in the playground was in a kind of a frozen state of suspended animation. And wow. uh, then things were returned to normal. And it was as if people kind of wondered how the night got away from them and why it was so late. Uh, and hardly anybody remembered the the experience. Man, oh 
all sounds familiar to me. Uh, but this is a weird thing that happens in these cases. Uh, well, here's a good example of something just like that. Summer of 1952, Elder Park Elementary School in Glasgow, Scotland. Mm-hmm. The school had just let out. Everyone was out on the playground beginning to walk home. And suddenly this big circular shadow appears over the playground. And everyone stops. Everyone becomes quiet. They freeze in place and look up. And this giant metallic craft, kind of shaped like a sombrero, comes lazily over the field, stops right over the school, 100 feet above, and starts just hovering there, slowly rotating. And uh, one of the main witnesses says it was very strange because there was this, she says, I couldn't tell you how long we watched this thing. There was a weird sense of timelessness, mm-hmm. as if everything was frozen. I'm thinking, gosh, this is exactly what that other lady said in Mentor, Ohio, or in the Rua Zimbabwe case, the most famous case of all. There was, again, that same sense of timelessness and a confusion about time, for that matter. And there's a couple of cases where the witnesses are unequivocally saying, oh, yeah, time stopped. People were frozen. Absolutely, they did not move. And uh, one guy said, was in his classroom when Grays walked in. And the entire class was frozen. Time stopped. These grades were just going up and down the aisles. So there's something to that, for sure. Uh, I've heard it way too many times for it to be a coincidence. And uh, in the Elder Park case, Glasgow, Scotland, this object suddenly whirs, lifts up, takes off over Glasgow, is gone. The students run home and tell their parents. Most of the parents don't believe them until the next morning when it's all over the newspapers. So there is another typical example of a UFO targeting a school for the express purpose of, I'm guessing, publicity. Mm-hmm. So, gosh, I mean, what else could this... Why would they be doing this? Uh, this is our friend Preston Dennett. He joins us usually every first Saturday with his segment, The Seen and the Unseen. He's got an amazing ability to collect these stories and accounts from all over the world. He's published 24 books, and we're lucky enough to have him back today talking about this book that just, I mean, this is so new that the ink is still drying. This is a brand new book called Schoolyard UFO Encounters, 100 True Accounts. And I predict that this is going to open a floodgate of other reports for you. Uh, And I sure hope so, because the implications of this in so many ways are, I think, are huge. Um, And we'll talk about some of those. You've got also some stories that you saved for us. Uh, And I imagine that as this book has been published, and now the publicity is starting to be generated, you're going to get more and more reports. Yeah, I am. In fact, those are some of the ones I wanted to share with you because they're not in the book. I haven't talked about them. Um, But boy, oh boy, they are amazing. I know Ray Hernandez, he contacted me. He's like, I've got a case for you. I'll get back to you shortly. He hasn't yet. But one guy from England did. And uh, he's someone I've spoken with before. He's like, I didn't tell you this because I've never told anybody. Uh, But I'll share it with you. And he was about seven or eight years old. 1963 in Leeds, England. Uh, He was at St. John's School when out there on the playground with a bunch of kids when all of a sudden kids got quiet and everyone's looking up at the sky. 
sky. And someone points out to him, look, look. And sure enough, there's this object approaching, which everyone first thought was a plane. They're little kids, you know. Mm-hmm. But uh, it wasn't a plane. It was completely silent. It was very low. It was silver. It had little orange portholes all around this object, uh, sort of round saucer-shaped. And it stopped over the school. And here's where it gets really interesting. Looking through the windows, they could see the silhouette of a person looking down at them, uh, which is pretty unusual for these types of cases. I mean, generally speaking, you know, mm-hmm. seeing a humanoid in a UFO is very rare. Mm-hmm. Uh, but with these schoolyard cases, it's not nearly as rare. As I said, one-third of the cases, just about, involve landings are humanoids. And here's a typical case of this object coming low enough over a school and a person looking out the window at the children. I mean, it's an amazing case. I'm still getting more information on it. I haven't done the full, complete interview. But it's that pattern that I keep seeing over and over again of these objects coming so low and uh, humanoids appearing. It's just amazing. Uh, this is Preston Dennett. More conversation to follow this top-of-the-hour break. His website is PrestonDennett.Weebly.com, uh, and he has the amazing ability that if you type in Preston Dennett to your favorite search engine, his website's going to pop right up. Um, he's also on Facebook, the author of 24 books. Our conversation this morning is about this latest one, Schoolyard UFO Encounters. 100 True Accounts. We'll be right back with Preston Dennett after this. Hey, the voice of the blues in Lincoln, Nebraska. KZUM Lincoln and KZUM HD. Support for KZUM comes from family-owned and operated Butheris Mason and Love Funeral Home at 40th and A Streets in Lincoln, offering services that allow families to plan ahead according to personal wishes, chapel facilities to accommodate all faiths, and grief support materials for the family following a service. More information is available at 402-488-0934 and online at bmlfh.com. And by... The Rococo Theater presenting Beatles vs. Elvis, a musical showdown with tribute band Abbey Road and Elvis tribute Scott Bruce, Sunday, August 18th at 7 p.m. at the Rococo Theater. Tickets, details, and more at rococotheater.com. And Lincoln Calling, the annual four-day music and art festival, September 18th through 22nd in downtown Lincoln featuring workshops and panel discussions on wellness, entrepreneurship, music, and culture, plus over 80 bands at eight venues, as well as an outdoor night market. Full lineup and other festival info on Facebook and lincolncalling.com. My name is Manny Morales. I'm 45 and I coach youth football. It's still hard to believe because the high school me was a work in progress, but big brothers, big sisters give me a real role model, and the young me needed a role model back. My bigger brother's name is Ray, and Ray is the reason that this seven-year-old grows up to be a role model himself. Whether you donate money or time, you're helping Big Brothers Big Sisters help a child. Start something today at BigBrothersBigSisters.org. Brought to you by Big Brothers Big Sisters and the Ad Council. 
Hi, I'm Dick Valverde, and I'd like to invite you on a musical journey of both sound and rhythm to a place I call Mesoterra. We'll travel far from commercial culture and just a step or two away from the abstract. So join me on Saturday afternoons, 3 to 5 p.m. for Mesoterra, right here on KZUM. Colborn with Jim Shorty and you guys and gals. We're celebrating 34 years of broadcast. It's a delight to have our friend and colleague Preston Dennett back with us. And we're talking about schoolyard UFO encounters. Uh, these experiences, by and large, happen to <coughs> bless me, happen to young people, and uh, in many cases it changes them for life. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this is something that you universally hear among the witnesses. Is They think about what they saw all those years ago when they were just a toddler uh, every day of their life. They are profoundly changed. It changes their worldview. Some of them grow up to become scientists or very interested in quantum physics. Um, well, here's a great example of how it influences people. Malcolm Robinson was just a young kid out there in Scotland playing football with his friends on the playground and look up and there's this UFO. It was a big circular silver object. They're trying to you know, think maybe is this a weather balloon? But it was just staying there in one spot. It was absolutely beautiful and stunning. And Malcolm certainly was convinced it was very unusual and under intelligent control. Uh, they looked away for just a second and it's gone. And it profoundly affected him to the point where he actually became one of the leading UFO researchers in Scotland and authored the books, you know, Scotland UFOs, Volume 1 and 2. And that's not unusual. You know, a number of people do become UFO researchers or write books about their experiences. Mm -hmm. So definitely it affects them. In fact, in some of these cases, kids, after their sighting, start having regular visitations. Uh, that happened in the Rua Zimbabwe case, where UFO landed and ETs came out, humanoids, and actually spoke with some of the students telepathically. Um, afterwards, some of these students continued to have encounters. 
of this, you know, we've got both the consideration for these other beings, these other people that are interacting with the, the school kids, with the teachers, etc., that we have the actual students and the faculty themselves and their, their reaction immediately as well as long-term. And then we've got, uh, as you say, in a number of cases, we have the government interest where people show up that are very curious about this, that want to interview some of the students, want to interview the faculty. And uh, I just think to myself, you know, there is so much of this evidence around Preston. I shake my head at some people that, that say sort of glibly, UFOs, show me the evidence. How, you know, how would you, is this uh, psychologically, is this a fantasy that has happened to over a hundred school playgrounds involving students and, and faculty? Um, is this uh, some sort of a delusion? A, uh, I forget the, uh, the French term, but it's a, it's a shared uh, delusion. Yeah, fully I do. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, is it um, is it quote unquote something from the water? Do they all have ingest some form of mind altering <laughs> chemical? Uh, maybe from lunch. Uh, maybe <laughs> maybe it was the the hot dogs or the uh, you know the uh, chicken nuggets they had at lunch. But you can run down this list of potential prosaic natural explanations and you arrive at the end of this that this is not just one case but you've got over a hundred in this book and it's, yeah. it's very hard to refute it it demands me 
And I think of our listeners as intelligent people that are curious, it demands our attention. This causes us to sit straight up and say, wait a minute. Right? Yeah, because I mean, this is our most precious resource, <laughs> our children here. And uh, it's not just one or two cases, as you say. There is one significant case at least every single year since 1950. I uh, couldn't find any cases before that except one, which was kind of an outlier. But after the modern age of UFOs, yeah, these guys showed up at schools and have not stopped, and it's still happening. And there is lots of physical evidence. There's some cases involving moving films and photographs, landing traces. Um, well, here's a great case. October 22, 1954, Jerome Elementary School in Marysville, Ohio. Sixty students are out there on the playground. You know, Sixty, that's a lot. Mm-hmm. Looking up and see this object. It's circling over the school. It's getting lower and lower. It's got bright, bright lights or portholes. It's very bright. And as it stays over the school for about five minutes, some students decide, you know, we better tell the teachers. So they do. The principal comes out. He's astonished. He's never seen anything like it before or since. Uh, it's very low. It's so bright he has to shield his eyes. He immediately calls another teacher, and she runs out. And she doesn't see it because it darts away very quickly. But here's where it's really interesting. As soon as this object leaves, it sends down this huge, gosh, sort of a snowstorm of cotton candy-like substance, which we now know as angel hair. Uh, back then, it wasn't well known. It's the sort of cottony, cotton candy-like substance. And it just poured down over this school for about 45 minutes, completely coating the playground, all the buildings in the entire area around the school. Uh, with great evidence, the students were scooping it up. Uh, normally, this stuff disintegrates very quickly, but there was just so much of it that it was staying there for a very long time, long enough for the principal to gather up large amounts of it, roll it up into a ball, and kind of made this gelatinous sort of substance that turned their hands green and eventually just dissolved away. But they did save a substance of it and sent it off to the local newspaper, who sent it off to the local Air Force Base, who did show interest in it. Uh, at Lockbourne Air Force Base. In fact, they found out years later that the Air Force had studied this case and was not able to come up with an explanation. And that's just one case. You know, there's another case, the next, let's see, October 1957, three years later, in Whitset, North Carolina, almost exactly the same type of thing, except there's 120 students, teachers, and the principal is out there, and there's angel hair all over the playground. One student scoops it up and puts it in his mouth to eat it. The principal couldn't stop him in time. Uh, He spit it out. It was salty and unpleasant. Uh, But again, they saved samples of it. They sent it to a scientific lab who was not able to identify it. Said, we think it's biological. You might try sending it to a biologist, Uh, which they did, uh, thinking maybe it was spider webs. And the biologist said, no, this is definitely not spider webs. There's no evidence of spiders. I don't know what this is. Uh, And again, the Air Force showed a lot of interest and sent over Captain Murray Thornton to try to debunk this case, which Principal Lambeth, he was not going to just sit down and take this. 
Uh, he has flown some 46 combat missions in World War II. He knows what aircraft are, and he, he knows that this was unusual. So, yeah, a lot of these cases involve excellent witnesses, adult witnesses, and physical evidence. There is no way that this is a hallucination at all. And it just, it, again, it caused me to, to chortle and laugh last night that one of your cases where all these witnesses, uh, students and teachers, are on the playground, they're looking at this object that's come down and it's hovering over the school. And then the Air Force investigates and then tells them that they believe that it was a misidentification of the planet uh, Saturn. <laughs> oh, gosh, it's infuriating. Yeah, there's the Beverly uh, Hills, or I mean, Beverly <clears throat> High School case, which is very much like that. Uh, this was from Ray Fowler, a great investigator. And it began when Claire Modugno was in her home, which is next to Beverly High School, sees a UFO coming down the street like a car. It's hovering maybe five feet up. She looks out. It's not a car. There's no windows. It's got orange lights on it. She screams, runs down the stairs, tells her parents, there's a UFO outside. They don't believe her at first, but she will not let up and finally gets them to go outside. Uh, and they go to the Beverly High School, three ladies, her mother and her two friends. And there's these three objects. One's hovering very low over the school. They're all tightly clustered together, these three ladies. One of them lifts her hands up and waves to the UFO. Well, the closest one drops down out of the sky in a split second and is right over their heads. And when I say over their heads, 20 feet over their heads. Wow. Causing them to scream and run away. Well, two of them ran away. One didn't. Brenda stayed in place. And the other two ladies, they turn around, they see Brenda. She's screaming, her hands are over her head. And this object is now 10 feet above her head. Uh, one of the witnesses actually urinated herself. She was so frightened. Uh, they you know, ran home, got more witnesses. They called the police. The police came. They're like, all right, where's the plane? And they're pointing to this object, which is now 30 feet over the school. Mind you, there's a basketball game going on inside the school. No one in, in the school itself saw this object. But planes came, chased it away. Air Force shows up, Project Blue Book. And they're like, mm, you saw Venus. That just infuriates. Can you imagine? Oh. <laughs> yeah, the, the audacity of that, that big lie, of that big bald-faced lie told to the faces of these people including the law enforcement that had seen this. <laughs> no, it was Venus. Oh, my God. Uh, That's a clear case of cover-up. They knew mm. full well it wasn't Venus. They had to. Yeah. Back in the, the early 90s, I investigated the case um, of a woman from Lincoln, Nebraska, who claimed to have interaction with the UFO phenomena and with a central figure that she called the protector. And uh, he appeared in most of her encounters as a um, enabler, assistant, a, a sort of governing person overseeing what was going on. Um, and so she recognized him from many multiple uh, personal encounters. 
the long and short of it was that she believed that she was being taken to an underground facility uh, near or outside of Artesia. She described the topography that there was a river nearby. So I did a, a search and found uh, Artesia, New Mexico, which is situated about 40 miles south of Roswell, it's between Roswell and Carlsbad Caverns. And so uh, I began doing research on this area and uh, made a personal trip there, sat in the newspaper editor's office one afternoon and talked about my interest. They ran a story and I got a number of uh, responses from the newspaper story of people that had seen unusual objects and craft in the area. And then I made, uh, this may be a leap of, of judgment, but I made a connection. I learned that Artesia was the site of the first underground school in the United States. It was built apparently back in the uh, 50s during the start of the Cold War as a way of, of protecting uh, the students uh, as well as a, a way to try to use the topography to uh, cool and heat the school. So it may be a leap, but I thought to myself, okay, this is an underground school. The area is riddled with underground caves there is purportedly an alien presence. Was this school constructed so that it could be sort of a viewing um, of the students and the faculty by the, the others, by these sentient beings? So I, I don't know, but uh, it was interesting. Go ahead. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me a bit. Yeah, I've been to that area, actually. I know there's a very famous photograph of a UFO taken right at the entrance of Carlsbad Caverns. Uh, so, gosh, yeah, it wouldn't surprise me a bit. Uh, and the area uh, around Artesia was going to be the site of a low-level, uh, excuse me, low-level nuclear waste depository facility and I believe it was called WIP. So again, wow. I, I think to myself, if you have, for the sake of argument, a presence of these others in the area, and you're aware of it, and you want to keep people out for maybe their own protection as well as to just keep this a secret, what better way than to put up fences with skulls and crossbones saying radioactive environment, stay out. You, you wouldn't get a lot of kids going out on a Saturday night saying, hey, let's hop the fence and see if we can glow green. <laughs> well, yeah. Hey, Preston, I've got um, from your book, this is from page 58. I don't know if you have a copy there. This is the Sacred Heart Elementary School. Yeah. Case. Um, let's talk about this because there's a number of, of aspects to this that I find interesting. Yeah, this is a great case, actually. 
um, occurred in Moline, Illinois, on March 9, 1967. And uh, a lot of students saw this. More than 40 students were out on the playground, as well as a patrol officer, William Fisher, and uh, his son was there as well. When this object shows up, kind of football-shaped, it's metallic, makes no sound, hovering over the school, and uh, shaped like a boxcar, perhaps. And uh, all the students are looking at it. He's looking at it. Some of the teachers are looking at it. Uh, there was this is actually you know, Sacred Heart Elementary School, taught by nuns. Uh, they didn't want to talk about it afterwards. Uh, but yeah, the case generated a lot of interest from the military uh, because this officer was able to take footage of this object as it's hovering over the school and moving off. And uh, this was close enough where, you know, cars were pulling over next to the school to watch this thing. It's a great case. Yeah, he's got a, a 8 millimeter camera that he uses in his job as a patrol officer. He takes about 20 seconds of film, and he finds that the winds were 40 to 45 mile per hour from the west-northwest, a completely different direction than the course the object had taken, which rules out, you know, a balloon... Uh, that sort of thing. Um, and then two U.S. Air Force captains arrive and expressed a strong interest in what he had seen. <laughs> and Fisher says he was also visited at the police station by three mysterious individuals dressed in black suits who cornered him and interrogated him about the sightings. At the time, there had been a wave of sightings in the area. They were being viewed by a lot of people, Fisher said. Uh, there were stories all around. I was just naturally curious. Yeah, by the way, he's still talking about this. You know, he's still doing interviews about what he saw all these years ago. Uh, and this is another case where our government is clearly showing an interest in this uh, on multiple levels. I mean, it's not just the, officially the Air Force, but the men in black, so to speak. I did see the footage, by the way. Uh, it's not super impressive by today's standards, uh, but back then, boy, I'm sure it caused waves, and it clearly shows this object hovering in the sky and moving off. And uh, you can't tell what it is. It's a very short clip, but impressive, because we know that it's legitimate. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of several cases in which people were able to get photographs of these objects uh, so there is physical evidence. I mean, there's one case in South Africa at Richmond School where this object landed on the school tennis courts and tore them up. And not just a little bit. I mean, they tore up the surface area pretty badly to the point where these courts were pretty much destroyed. Uh, a lot of people saw these landing traces. They brought in the police. The police did an investigation. They found parts of the tennis courts a very far distance off on a hill uh, there was a bunch of people who saw the ufos landing there you know on that night so these are excellent um, examples of physical evidence it's very hard to explain away mm -hmm. uh, this is preston dennett the brand new book is schoolyard ufo encounters and preston before we go to the break here how about another story Here's one I love because I spoke to the witness myself. Uh, I was able to track only a few of these cases personally. Most come from, you know, New Fork, MUFON, APRO, QFOS, uh, various UFO 
Yard Encounters was right before the Hillsdale case, right before the Melbourne Westall High School case. Melody Korn was at elementary school. She's like 11 years old, I believe. And uh, this is in let's see, Point Elementary School in St. Louis, Missouri. And everyone's out on the playground, and normally they'd be playing Foursquare or Hopscotch or something, and she and her friends decided they were going to play tag. So they went out onto the football field there, and uh, there were six kids who were separated from all the others, three boys, three girls. She looks down and sees these footprints, and they're weird because they're half size, even smaller. They're, they look human, but they're not because the toes are way too pointy. There's a really kind of roundish heel. It's bipedal, and all the kids are gathering around looking at you know all these footprints, and there's quite a number of them, trying to figure out what animal or creature could possibly have made them, and they can't figure it out. And one of the students looks up and says, hey, what's that? And they're in the trees next to the school. Right behind the school, there's this little farmhouse. There's four cows on some trees, and there's these white lights in the trees. It's like, what's that? They're, they're thinking, you know, they're 10 years old. They're thinking, ice cream truck. So, you know, ice cream trucks did go go through the town periodically. That's where their mind went. And so they're like, oh, well, let's go. You know, there's no roads there. There's no way it could be an ice cream truck, but that's what they thought. So they take off. They go past the school boundary, which they're not supposed to do, and uh, run up to this object which has landed right behind the trees there. This is a pattern I've seen in a bunch of cases. These objects land behind the schools in a grove of trees. And that's exactly what happened here. They came upon it. It was very small, you know, like a car, practically. Uh, silver, metallic, had white lights on top, and was landed on the ground. And they're looking at it thinking, what is this? There's no music. There's no ice cream. And there's a figure standing very close to it, maybe 10, 20 feet away from them, and it's not human. She does not know how to describe this creature. It's not a typical gray. She says it was like four feet tall, looked almost like a gorilla or something. It was very muscular, dark-skinned, large, large, dark eyes, large, bald head, and was staring at them, and in fact never took its eyes off of them as it slowly began to walk towards the craft so strange it walks up to this cow you know there's four cows it walks right up to a cow touches it the cow falls over unconscious just it's out and they're freaking out at this point you know they're not saying anything they're just staring at it when suddenly miss ollendorf the teacher comes running up from behind and she is screaming she's in a complete panic and pulls the children away she can see everything and she sees the UFO, the humanoid. She pulls the children back into the school. She takes everyone off the playground who are now beginning to see this object, pulls them all into the classroom, and they rush up to the windows because they want to see. And sure enough, you can see this object there. You can't see the humanoid anymore. She closes all the blinds, refuses to let the children look out the window, calls other teachers, calls the principal. They cut the school day short. Get the school buses, herd the children into the gymnasium, and start getting them on the school bus, at which point the UFO does take off. One of the students sees it through the gymnasium window before it darts away. 
yeah, I spoke with the witness about this. She's still in touch with the other students, four of them at least, uh, who, and they regularly talk about this every couple of years. I'm trying to track them down and get interviews from them, but man, oh man, what a case. Uh, the the cases are listed uh, chronologically, so you can go through and look at the the earlier accounts all the way up to the modern uh, era. And uh, again, they're strikingly similar. You have uh, over half the cases are elementary schools. Uh, you have broad daylight for most of the cases. You have multiple witnesses. Many of these cases consist of both the, the young people, the students, as well as teachers, faculty, or adult bystanders. Uh, and it's not just, not just one. You know, the late and great Stan Friedman, Preston, used to, to ask us to think about the question. Um, the argument is not whether or not all of these reports are true and correct, but just whether or not one is. Uh, we don't have to prove every UFO report to decide that, quote-unquote, UFOs are real just has to be one. And uh, this book is just <laughs> relentless. Uh, and again, the, the implications of this, uh, I've been pondering this all this week about, about what this means. Uh, let's come back with more Preston Dennett. This brand new book that we're talking about is Schoolyard UFO Encounters. This comes on the, the close heels of his previous book that was about UFO healings that ran over 500 pages. And uh, I value that book very, very much because there has been so much publicity about negative encounters with UFOs. Part of that, I believe, is, is thinly disguised disinformation, trying to get us to view this phenomenon, these other people, as being out to get us. Uh, and so his book, UFO Healings, I think is an important book to counter that argument. And then we have this book. Preston, do you know of, of any report in the book <clears throat> that we couldn't describe as being just simply curious and benevolent? Yeah, the vast majority of these schoolyard sightings are absolutely benevolent. I mean, I, I'm going to say pretty much all of them. There are a few abduction cases which are, you know, traumatic to the witnesses, certainly. Uh, but, like, look at the Rua Zimbabwe case, the ultimate case of this, where there's 200 children on the playground. This is in 1994. About 60 children see these objects, one of which lands. ETs come out. A large group of children see these humanoids, and a smaller handful, maybe 10, get actual messages from them. And the messages are very positive, and they're universally about the environment, which back in 1994, particularly in that area of rural South Africa, which was very wild, uh, it was not a talking point. It was not an issue, uh, environment, and pr preserving it. But that's what the ET said. They told one student that we were chopping down our forests, and that was going to lead to some major problems in our future. Now we have to stop polluting the air. 
They told another student uh, that we've become far too technological, that we are using technology the wrong way, there's a right way and a wrong way, and we could do a lot better. So these are very positive messages. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what we're seeing in all these cases is nothing nefarious at all. Well, if they wanted to take over, they could, but that's not what's happening. Yeah, yeah any, you know, the argument could be that in any one of these cases, um, the kids are out there in the playground, the UFOs could zap them, you know, boom, and get these kids. They could obliterate all these kids, uh, but that's not what's happening. Let's talk again about some of the implications, about some of the messages that these people have shared with you um, about how the effects... Um, uh, linger on into their adult life, um, how they view this phenomenon, and maybe a few more cases, okay? Yeah. We'll yeah be, absolutely. I mean. We'll be right back with Preston Dennett, our colleague and friend, the author of Schoolyard UFO Encounters. I'm Scott Colborn with Jim. Jim, what do you think? This is some interesting stuff. Schoolyard UFO encounters. Certainly, I at the time I thought I had a lot of aliens around me on the schoolyard, but those were just you know the other kids. We'll have more on this right after these words. Stay tuned. He says, you know I love you, baby But I gotta ride I hear the call of the road in his side See the soaring eagle in his eye So I give him his wings Let him fly In his rambling solitude, he'll find what he needs. In the stoic silence of the mountains, the wisdom of the trees. In the freedom of the uncluttered sky, as the hours and the miles unwind. Fortify his dreams, clear his mind.
Voice of the Blues in Lincoln, Nebraska, KZUM Lincoln and KZUM HD. Support for This Week in Lincoln comes from the local venues listed here. This is live music happening this week in Lincoln. Saturday, August 17th brings the Jerry Pranksters to Bailey's Local at 9 p.m. And Denzel Curry starts at 8 at the Bourbon Theater. On Sunday, August 18th, the Playmore Ballroom's Country Night features Goodnight and Bale and City Limits at 8. Zoolarius begins at 8 at the Zoo Bar, and the Killigans play Duffy's Tavern at 8 with Black Swift and Good St. Nathaniel. That's live music happening this week in Lincoln. The full moon lights the silver rails winding around dark mountains and over steep gorges of jagged rock and one freezing cold rushing Black Mountain River. I wish there was enough time to describe all of the funny twists and turns that led up to now, but there isn't enough time because there's a ticking clock and the two passengers we care most about don't know anything about it. To see what happens next, visit read.gov to read The Exquisite Corpse, a riveting adventure pieced together by John Sheska, Shannon Hale, Daniel Handler, and other popular authors. Explore new worlds. Read. Brought to you by the Library of Congress and the Ad Council. Hi, I'm Dick Valverde, and I'd like to invite you on a musical journey of both sound and rhythm to a place I call Mesoterra. We'll travel far from commercial culture and just a step or two away from the abstract. So join me on Saturday afternoons, 3 to 5 p.m. for Mesoterra, right here on KZUM. Scott Colborn with Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. It's great to have you with us. And uh, I've certainly enjoyed this, uh, this conversation with Preston Dennett. Hey, we've got somebody that just popped in the studio here, too. And... Uh, so, Deb, uh, welcome to the uh, studio here. And Hi, Scott. What are you doing here? Well, um, it's uh, today I am, I will be the uh, host for Beta Radio, which is the awesome. uh, show that uh, KZUM uses to highlight new programmers who have completed the Programming Academy. And I think I'd be remiss to mention that if you go to the KZUM website right now, then you can see that uh, we are at taking applications for a new crop of students. So definitely, if you have an idea that you'd like to share with the uh, KZUM listening audience, then I would highly encourage you to go and fill out an application online for the next Programming Academy that we're having. So. Uh, at 12.01 and yes. counting, what are we in store for? What are we going to be hearing? So my, I'd like to call my segment the Beignet Reboot. And this is kind of like an homage to our longtime KCUM friend, programmer, volunteer, Bonnie Smith, who had a Zydeco and a Cajun music show. So I kind of like to bring that back every once in a while for our listening audience. Uh, great selection at 12.01 coming up here. We've got Deb with some Zydeco and some Cajun impossible to not tap your feet, snap oh. your fingers, nod your um, head. Just maybe a little bit of that. Great well, stuff just, coming it up. It just sounds like fun. Yeah. Just to hear, hear you say it. <laughs> so It's a fun word to say, Zydeco. It, it is. <laughs> so. Okay, so leave your, you, leave your computer and or radio dial right where it is. We've got a fun program coming up here in just a matter of minutes. Uh, Preston, are you there? I'm here. It's been great to talk with you here about this book, Schoolyard UFO Encounters. Uh, what are some of the overall themes that have emerged w when 
you have read the accounts or talked with the people. Um, what do they come away with? Um, I think ultimately the agenda on the ETs is to convince people in a sort of quiet way of the reality of UFOs. And I think they've been very successful because what we're looking at now is our younger generations pretty much do have a universal belief in UFOs. Mm-hmm. And I find it very interesting because there's a youth movement right now uh, in schools to sort of take action about uh, the environment, which is the number one message the ETs are giving. And I don't think that's a coincidence. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm pretty hopeful about that. And uh, yeah, I think it's all good news ultimately and what we're leading towards is open official contact i think once these younger generations grow up i mean this has been going on very strong since the 1950s uh we're going to reach a point where this does go into the mainstream where it's not unusual to see a ufo and we're going to have open official contact i can't see it going any other way at this point uh but yeah, I'm very hopeful to see how all of this rolls out. Now, this is from your closing uh, uh, chapter in the book. The uh, you're referencing the uh, Condon Report, Project Blue Book, and in their conclusion, they wrote a related problem to which we wish to direct public attention is the miseducation in our schools which arises from the fact that many children are being allowed, if not actively encouraged, to devote their scientific study time to the reading of UFO books and magazine articles. Therefore, we strongly recommend that teachers refrain from giving students credit for schoolwork based upon their reading of the presently available UFO books and magazine articles. Uh, And just a little bit earlier, of course, there was the Robertson panel, which said, you know, to kind of keep a lid on this, it'd be good to disinform people. And we'll even uh, embed and use actively uh, the me- news media to, to help us do this. So, yeah, don't think about it, kids. <laughs> it, it, wasn't, it wasn't a round saucer with bright lights. It wasn't a craft that landed in the schoolyard on the tennis courts. Uh-uh. <laughs> Can you imagine? It's just incredible to me that they would devote time in their study to specifically mention children. Clearly, they, they must know about these types of cases. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just astonishing to me. So, uh, more information coming on this subject, schoolyard UFO encounters. Uh, if anybody out there has had or knows of a schoolyard UFO encounter, please contact Preston Dennett. And uh, his website is PrestonDennett.Weebly.com. If that's a mouthful, it's easy just to type in to your favorite search engine, Preston Dennett. And his website's going to pop right up. Please do get your reports and accounts to him. And uh, we'd love to hear more on this subject, too. Preston, how about a, a final story for us? Yeah. Oh, gosh. There are so many, <laughs> Scott, there's so many. On May 17th, 1970, uh, this is in Marinui, New Zealand. 400 students and two teachers see this giant object hovering over the school. It's saucer-shaped. It's so big and 
so low that it's covering about a third of the sky. One of the students runs up to the teacher and says, is that a UFO? <laughs> and the teacher had to say yes, because he couldn't identify it. And they watched it for a good 20 minutes before this thing turns up on its side and darts up straight up. Now, mind you, there is an airport only a few miles away, which they did contact. The airport denied any knowledge of this incident, didn't see anything. And this is not a particularly rural area. There were other people around, but nobody saw anything except these 400 students and two teachers. That's another pattern that turns up. I mean, that happened in the Opalaka case in Crestview, Florida. In the Melbourne case, there were airports next door, and they didn't see anything or they denied it. I don't know. Gosh, there's just case after case after case like this involving hundreds of students. So where do you go from here, Preston? What uh, is it too soon to ask you what's next on your on your writing table? <laughs> no, no, not at all. I'm keeping busy, let me tell you. I am now working on another book very much like uh, my other book, Inside UFOs which people have had very extensive contact and some of the more unusual contact cases. Because, uh, uh, you know, it's not just about being examined by gray ETs and anally probed. Um, it's a much more layered and complex experience in which I think people are being slowly enlightened and woken up to a much larger reality. So that's what I'm working on right now. And what does Preston Dennett, the bookkeeper by day, UFO researcher at night and on the weekends, what are you doing for the rest of today? Um, I'm thinking of making a nice pot of chili, actually. Mm. <laughs> I like to do that at least once a year, and I've gotten pretty good at it. And uh, don't normally eat a whole lot of meat, but every now and then, once a year, I'd like to make a nice big pot of chili, breathe a bunch. And yeah, that's what I'm going to be doing today. Oh, love it. Do you like your chili uh, mild or spicy? How do you how do you make it? It's got three meats, four peppers, five types of beans, and edges on spicy, but not too spicy. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I like a little kick to it for sure. That's that's what chili is. It has to have a little kick to it. Yeah, and I I like the same way because then if people want it spicier, they can add they can add stuff to it. But otherwise. You know, if you make it so it takes the pain off, then fewer people can enjoy it. So, mm, boy, I'm salivating, Jim, to beat the band here. It must be close to lunchtime. Must be. <laughs> uh, Preston, we, um, you're one of our favorites, uh, and we really value our relationship with you. Uh, let me give the, the correct title out here, too. The previous book, The Healing Power of UFOs, 300 True Accounts of People Healed by Extraterrestrials. Uh, The book is massive. It runs over 500 pages. And this book I'm going to also recommend to people, the brand new one, Schoolyard UFO Encounters, 100 True Accounts. Thank you, my friend, for all that you do. Hey, you got it, Scott. Always a pleasure. Preston Dennett. Uh, it's so easy to find him. Type his name into your favorite search engine. He's going to pop right up. And if you have information about Schoolyard UFO Encounters, please get that out to us here, okay? Contact Preston and let him know. 
Jim Shorty, what are you doing for the rest of today? I uh, can go home, have some lunch, maybe do some ham radio. Man, that chili sounds good that Preston <laughs> talked about. Wow. I'm going to go in search of some good food like that, and I'm going to play some guitar today, I think. Sounds good. Um, I didn't ask you earlier about weather, and I know you've got your system shut down. So, uh, No, I don't. It looks like it's pretty nice out it's, there right uh, 79 now. degrees right now. Uh, forecast high is 88 and mostly sunny. Okay, there you go. Stay tuned uh, for Deb with some Zydeco music coming right up here. Hey, guys and gals, we also value you, the listeners that are out there. Uh, as we close in on 35 years of broadcast, I would be remiss if I didn't also include you in this fun experiment that we're calling Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. Thanks so much for your support in all ways. Uh, we can feel it. We can hear it. We can read it. We appreciate the love. We send it right back to you. Stay tuned next week for conversations. We're going to have, uh, there it is, Brent Rains, John A. Keel, the man, the myths, and the ongoing mysteries. Mm. Brent is our fourth Saturday of the month guest, and he's got this brand new book on John Keel that I can't wait to read. I am just such a lucky guy. You are. Okay, guys and gals, thanks so much for listening. I'm Scott Colborn with Jim Shorty. Until next week, walk in beauty.